thanks so much for joining us on Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we welcome Dr. Larry McAvoy, who is a doctor and an author of the new book, Epidemic Leadership, How to Lead Infectiously in the Era of Big Problems. Larry, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Stephanie. Great to be with both of you. We're really excited to talk to you. You have so many great ideas. And I think the perfect place to jump in would be you talk about epidemic regeneration. And obviously that plays in your book. So tell us what is epidemic regeneration? You know, you have to remember I'm an emergency physician, right? So um, my life and work, at least as it began, was waiting in an emergency department for bad things to happen to people. So I've like all ER personnel, I'm kind of an expert in destruction, right? And what happens when things don't go well. And that could be a hard place to live sometimes. <clears throat> and so I got really interested many years ago in how do things get healthy again? Um, whether they're sort of mediocre and want to be fantastic or they're really damaged and need to get to sort of survival again. And um, my work trajectory oddly sort of tracked that clinical perspective, right? I was um, an emergency physician, then I was a chair of a department, I was an executive in two different organizations, I ended up becoming the CEO of an organization in Colorado, that was the largest trauma center in the state at the time, and everywhere I went, there was sort of this, things need to get better, kind of everywhere in a hurry yesterday, well, that's nice, but people are tired, right, they're doing the best they can, and so I started looking around and thinking, well, where does this happen, right, when, where do things go kind of from nothing to something, they go fast and they make a lasting effect. Turns out it's epidemics, right? I mean, as we were talking about before we started the interview that a year and a half ago, no one even knew what coronavirus was unless you were sort of a geeky epidemiologist sort. And this particular coronavirus, right? The, the one that causes COVID-19 had no passport, no business plan, no Twitter handle, no social media following, no dollars. I mean, nothing. It was anonymous. And all of a sudden, it's everywhere, right? So I became really interested in biological phenomena, epidemics, that move really fast without wearing themselves out and create an effect. And as a physician, I was taught to stop epidemics. And we should stop bad epidemics, right? Domestic violence, opioids, diabetes, measles. Um, but what's really interesting is that our sort of our armamentarium these days of neuroscience, network science, and complexity science, all nerdy terms, really give us the hint that we maybe could create positive epidemics rather than just try to fend off bad ones. And that's kind of how I got interested in this idea. Could you create exponentially healthy dynamics, whether it was biometric health, right, like healthy bodies, or healthy teams, healthy organizations, healthy sectors, healthy communities, in essence, by copying epidemics. So, you know, as you're talking, I guess I'm thinking of the concept of the epigenome, uh, which, uh, which I'm relating to what you're saying about uh, the environment uh, that we live in ultimately helps determine uh, the outcomes. So is that along the lines of what you're talking about? Or could you give us maybe one or two examples of where you see some of those positive uh, epidemics in action? Remember, inter epidemics, sometimes, you know, we read articles about them or you hear about them and they sort of seem like this monolithic swarm, right? But when you look closer, what you see is that epidemics rise out of certain conditions, right? You can't really grow malaria very well in the Sahara. It's too hot and dry. You can't get mosquitoes, right? 
And so epidemics have some sort of fundamental, fundamental organizing principles, right? There have to be the right conditions. There has to be an interaction, right? So in the places that I saw good things happen, the ER where I started my career and the organizations where I've worked, um, we tried to think about setting conditions, but we also really focused on what are the two-way interactions that can really make things healthier. So in an emergency department, for example, or a hospital or a school, people bump into each other. And you can increase or decrease the rate at which they bump into each other. And the pandemic has done that for us, right? A lot of people are like, man, I miss my friends, right? Can we like lose the mask, get outside, go to a barbecue? And so we've, we know that we can alter the number of interactions, but you can also alter the pattern. We tried to think about if you can take the math of people bump into me, bumping into each other, both intentionally and randomly and say, every time people bump into each other, can you create a positive effect? You're essentially mimicking an epidemic, right? Because the coronavirus just leverages that flywheel. It doesn't care if you're a bartender or a meat packer or a doctor or a truck driver or a mom or a dad, you bump into people with it and something's gonna happen. It's interesting. You said that there are so many places that you've been that have these negative issues at the beginning and they're really struggling and everybody is exhausted through all of your work. Is there a common theme that you see that these people, because it sounds like they're trying, if they're exhausted, they're obviously trying and working hard to do better and they want to do great work. What is it that needs switched? I think one of the things that um, we notice in these uh, let's just call them distressed environments, right? Where there are a lot of people trying hard, maybe feeling like they're spinning in their wheels. Um, and this happens in corporations, right? They got to make more money or more market share. It happens It happens to school kids. I mean, they, I, I'm interested in the sort of fundamental human phenomena around this. One of the things we see is a real focus on output. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, I'm an ER doc. I like things done well yesterday, right? We need to produce results. But I think in these environments, what you see is a focus on results and on a long list of tasks to be done and less focus on how do we think, how do we act and how do we interact and how do we create the patterns that will actually allow this sort of, I call it this sort of triple stranded holy grail, right? Of PL and V, performance to increase, learning to increase and vitality to increase. And we find that when people shift to a focus on those things, those patterns of thought, action, and interaction, a couple of things happen. They get more results done. They're actually learning better how to create those results and what other things to learn that they may not have noticed before. And they start to re-energize themselves. Uh, Apoorva and I were talking about this in terms of biology, right? That all of biology has to perform. If you don't perform in the world of life, you die, right? And because the world is different every day, if you don't learn and adjust and adapt, you die. Grim picture, right? Well, what fuels all that is really your vitality, right? You learn better if you're really alive, if you're really energized and enthusiastic. If you're learning more, you perform better. But I think in a lot of these degraded environments, because we're behind, we're out of time and there's too much to do, we start really pushing at our output instead of investing in our input. So in a volatile environment, which we're all dealing with and why we hear so much about mental health issues, behavioral health issues, uh, burnout right now, now it's become the bane of our world. Everybody's burning out, uh, not only the physicians, the nurses, but, but pretty much all the stakeholders. 
what what do you think? Is there like a step-by-step process of where, where this rejuvenation kind of starts? You can't take them out of the yeah. environment. That's not what you're proposing, right? So where did- where No, do you no. Start? Yeah, I think there are, there are uh, principles, right? One, I think, is, is what I would call to identify the right pathogen, right? I mean, coronavirus is very clear about it, what it causes in your body. It causes COVID-19. It doesn't cause AIDS. It doesn't cause cancer. It doesn't cause community-acquired pneumonia. It causes COVID-19 and then the sequelae, which we're learning more and more about, clotting disorders, et cetera. So what is the pathogen really that allows a team or an organization to function? That's their decision, but often I'm not sure that we have the right pathogen. And I'll give you an example. I think in our society, for example, one of the pathogens we might describe is acquisition convenience and gratification. If you design all of your efforts and focus around acquisition, gratification, and convenience, you actually make yourself unhealthier, either as a business, a family, or as an individual. So I think a lot of businesses have good goals or a lot of clinical teams have good goals, but have they really designed the central idea of their work, which can turn into a lot of things as they interact and as they go through projects and initiatives, to, to something that really will drive performance and learning and vitality. I, so I think there's a piece there, identify your pathogen. So it's gonna take you where you wanna go instead of take you partway there and find out, shoot, we're in trouble. A good example of this in healthcare would be the triple aim, right? The triple aim is a great idea, but it morphed into the quadruple aim. Why? Because as a pathogen, as something that could go epidemic, let's all think about the triple aim it forgot the investment in the clinical microsystems in the clinical teams and the clinicians themselves, right? So we pursued this pathogen and multiplied it and let it roll. And then we found out, man, this is not tenable. I think that's one piece of is, is identify the pathogen. The second is what are the conditions that allow an individual human and a group of humans to really perform well, really continuously adapt and really re-energize. And we have a lot of great literature out there now about you know, growth mindset and what motivates people and how we enter flow states together and how we can become more creative, more innovative, more reliable. So setting those conditions, whether you're an individual, a team or a leader is really important. And similarly from our neuroscience and behavioral science, we know an awful lot about what optimizes human interaction and minimizes sort of everything from micro sleep to distraction, detachment, boredom, antipathy, antagonism, conflict. And so designing those interactions is sort of the third piece. And then the fourth one is if you have an organization of 10,000 people or a, ten, a team of 10, if you're doing those things well, but only once a week on Friday for two minutes, the math will bury you. So you need a multiplier, right? Coronavirus is powerful, not just because it can get into mink and you know, zoo animals occasionally and into any of us. It's powerful because it knows how to get everywhere. It has really rapid multipliers. Mm -hmm. And so I think thinking about multiplication as opposed to asking people to run really hard as individuals is another principle. So those are the four I kind of think of if you wanna start a positive epidemic. And it sounds listening to you talk about it and the way you continue to compare it to coronavirus, 
just like coronavirus, this isn't the problem, isn't something that's uniquely American, like the coronavirus that can go anywhere as long as the conditions are right. right. So can these issues. And you've seen that with the work that you've done in Uganda. So tell us about the school that you've worked with and how epidemic leadership and epidemic regeneration thrives in that scenario. Yeah, that's a really great story and a fun one for me because I learned a lot there. Um, you know, again, my native environment's sort of U.S. healthcare, right? But um, a friend of mine brought me over to a school over there that was going well, um, but you know, it's a poor area, and when the kids were done, there was nothing really for them to bolt onto. And so the folks at the school were interested in how can we make our efforts longitudinally keep these young people not just surviving in their community or getting a job or having an education, but can actually get the whole community to go. And so I had a chance to go over there and, and talk and listen. And, you know, I always like to say, uh, you know, if, if you're a good physician, there are a lot of things that we learn that are technical, but one of the best skills really is listening, right? Going in and listening to a mom or a dad or a patient. And so I got a chance to listen to the school, the, the staff, the teachers, the students. And they had this motto, and this goes to the, the issue about conditions, right? Um, and um, the motto really was be humble and obedient. And they didn't have it pasted on the walls in, in paint as like, here's our motto. And some organizations do that, I realize. But when I would ask the children and go to the classroom and say, hey, hello students, how are you today? They would say, they would stand up, huge smiles on their faces. Hello, Dr. Larry, we are fine. We are humble and obedient. And that, that mindset just beat like a drum all day, every day in that school. And I remember asking the teachers, I, I said, so help me understand where does this come from? And it came from a really good spot, right? We want our children to always be humble, to not think they're more than their community or more than what they are. And children need to learn to obey. They need to learn to have discipline. They need to you know, learn to follow the rules. And, the, and they were worried about these kids kind of running amok, I suppose, or not being respected. And I asked them the question, and we did this in a workshop style thing. So I don't want to give the idea that I was up there with a you know, laser pointer telling people how to think because it never works that way. And, and if you think it does, um, yeah, you know, we, again, we have a pandemic to remind us it doesn't work. Um, anyway, I said, so does humility and obedience, those two words in the children's head, does that allow them to escape poverty, create a positive future, create a microeconomy? All these things you hope that they'll do, are those two words enough? And it was really interesting, the conversation the teachers had was, wow, we need a new word, right? And this is, again, a condition of an epidemic, right? Can you grow an epidemic of innovation in conditions of obedience? No, obedience is inherently kind of a, or innovation rather is kind of a disruptive act, right? We're not going to accept the present anymore. We're gonna strike out and try something different. So the teachers decided that the word they needed was creativity, particularly because they wanted the children to feel confident as they described them and bold and relentless and resilient in creating something from nothing. And they saw that as, boy, that itself is creativity, right? It's not about artistic or finger paints. Creating is making something happen when there isn't something there. And so they rebuilt their whole language and structure and process around, we are 
humble people, right? And we are obedient in terms of being disciplined about studying and learning, but we are creative. We're going to make things happen. And the school has taken off. When I first went there, it was a baked, barren, trash-strewn, no plants kind of schoolyard. Just It was an old brick foundry. Two years later, the whole thing is planted in fruit trees and greenery everywhere. Um, pretty impressive, right? They won an award as uh, for their school music program. Their soccer team, which didn't even have uh, shoes, came in second in a district tournament. Um, they've got a computer lab going, uh, aquaponics. Some of those things were going there already, but the explosion of creativity in the tangible results and then reciprocally back into the mindsets of the students and the teachers has been phenomenal. They didn't shut down the, the pandemic. They were the only school in that area that didn't. They rebuilt their teaching model and the teachers went out to narrow bubbles of kids and they kept the kids in school the whole time. And they've sort of become a beacon for other schools who are now coming to them saying, hey, we wanna plant trees and grow food when food security is an international issue now in our school too, can you help us? So they've gone from kind of, you know, they've kind of become rock stars in their own community. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, what a fantastic, what a fantastic story of regeneration. So Larry, as you're talking, I'm thinking uh, it's so fascinating that you can connect the biology to our life processes. I think it's amazing because obviously biology is life, duh, but we don't think of it that way. <laughs> So, so maybe my questions are, are related to that, which is that in biology, it feels that the, the regeneration is happening naturally. It's happening as a function of the environment. Yep. Why on the human side does it take intervention to create that? And, I, and the related part B of that question is, is it just easier on the human side to replicate negativity and positivity sometimes has to be engineered in some other way? You know, I think, uh, let me ask the second question first about, um, you know, negativity. You know, I, I mean, our brains are probably wired to look for changes in patterns, right? For deficits and gaps. And that's a normal, healthy thing with regard to threats. Um, our brain's also wired to look for novelty and what's curious and what's interesting to us, right? So I think it becomes the discipline, not of reconfiguring your brain as much as being intentional about how you guide it, whether you're an individual brain or a, a team of brains or an organization of brains or society. And I think, you know, not paying attention to the bad is dangerous, right? And yet focusing only on it is actually quite deleterious as well. So there's, I think that's sort of how I look at it. Um, I'm not into oblivion, right? Again, I'm an emergency physician. So if you broke your femur in half, you broke your femur in half, let's deal with what we have. And the literature on resilience would show that acknowledging reality is really important, right? Pretending it's not there and let's just sort of blindly go on doesn't create the solutions we need and it doesn't create the psychic stability and perseverance we need either. It just creates oblivion and denial. Um, on the other question about whether we need to be, force ourselves as humans to be intentional, we are biological, right? So like all biology, we're continuing to do things at work we're discarding things that are no longer needed, whether that's skin cells or exhaling CO2 or old methods. And we're bringing in new ideas, which biology does by way of mixing and mutation and migration and things like that. I think we humans have such a big brain, we can decide to opt out if we want at the cognitive level, right? We can say biology doesn't count. We don't have to follow that script. 
we can just treat life as if it's a big mechanical assembly line. And we have the power technologically and psychically to make that the way we see the world. I don't think it works, right? I think, I think one of my take homes from 2020 was that more and more people are realizing some fundamental realities of life on this planet, big and small, which is that biology makes the rules. But we humans can decide not to follow those rules if we want. I think personally, the future of the quantum team, the quantum individual, the quantum organization, the really healthy, wow, better future is in learning to listen to biology again, not as a quaint topic, but as an operating system for how we organize, how we think and work and how we lead and follow. It's clear through this interview that anybody can do this. Anybody can take these strategies. You don't have to be in a position of traditional power to feel like you're right. making a change. Your school example clearly illustrates that. So it sounds like your book would be an amazing read for so many people. What is the message that you want people to close your, the back of your book cover with when they finish that? Yeah, I think that's kind of it, Stephanie. I mean, the most inspiring and humbling awareness for me during my CEO tenure was how many people have the capacity, the skill, the energy, and the volition to do amazing things. We got more than our list done. And, and there were people betting against us, right? So you're right, anyone can do this. And I think closing the book, it's look, I don't have to be an astronaut or a fireman or a, a school board member or whatever I am, I can start here. And in starting here, I can create things that are healthier within and from me and for me and within and from and for others as well. Um, so it's, it's not about station, it's about approach. And it's, uh, you know, it's a shift in the exponential power of the possible, I suppose. I love that. It was an amazing conversation and we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank, thank you. you and thank you all for watching. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.